Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the second hour of our program. Congressman Ro Khanna is here with us for the hour, taking your calls. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th district of the state of California, uh, generally known as Silicon Valley. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back. Tom, it's always great to be on. Thank you. Impeachment is not just a in this moment event that we are still looking back on the Andrew Johnson presidency through the lens of his impeachment. We're still looking back at the Richard Nixon presidency and defining what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior by a president through the lens of what Richard Nixon was impeached for. And there was a big debate when Nixon was being impeached about whether or not they should include his secret bombing of Cambodia, which was a clear war crime. And they ultimately decided not to. I think they should have I think that probably a lot of things wouldn't have happened between then and now if presidents had been put on notice that you can be held accountable for this. And, um, you know, and, and, the, and Bill Clinton, of course, you know, the, the, whether it was important or not or whether it was impeachable or not, uh, we look at his presidency through that lens. And I think that that's how we're going to view the Trump presidency. And it's going to define the parameters of behavior for future presidents. And for that reason, I, my personal opinion is that all of the actual crimes, things that are violations of the Constitution, like the Emoluments Clause, or things like you know paying off Stormy Daniels, an actual violation of campaign finance laws, should be included in the impeachment uh, resolution. What say you? Tom, I agree with you that it has to be broad-based. I mean, it has to have the findings of the Mueller report. It has to have something on the violation of emoluments, and it obviously needs to talk about the violation in Ukraine and badgering the Ukrainian president to uh, investigate Biden. And the reason is that uh, what you said, we are setting a precedent about what is acceptable conduct uh, for a president of the United States, and we're standing up uh, for the rule of law. What I tell my Republican friends is, uh, in other countries uh, around the world, you've had actually sometimes people from the far left who run roughshod over the Constitution. And uh, what would you say if uh, the ideology was different of Trump? I mean, why wouldn't you want to stand up for the rule of law and, and, and constitutional democracy? So that's what I think the House's exercises is, uh, is doing. We, we will never be able to uh, legislate uh, away from the damage that Trump has done to the public discourse. I mean, he's created a public conversation, fact-free, uh, evidence-free, filled with hate, and that's going to take years to recover from. But we can at least safeguard uh, the institutional democracy we have. Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, any comments you wanted to make about what you guys are doing in Congress right now, or do you want to go right to the phone lines? Well, we're obviously focused on uh, the impeachment inquiry. I, I believe we will have a vote by the end of the year, but we're also very focused on lowering the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, the Progressive Caucus, led by Lloyd Doggett, uh, Mark Pocan, Pramila Jayapal, myself, and a few others, we're fighting to make sure that we deliver on the promise that Medicare should be able to negotiate for uh, prescription drugs. Right now, the the, the bill uh, limits it to just 35 of the most expensive drugs. 
uh, progressives say we, we ran on Medicare being able to negotiate with all uh, drugs. That's not good enough. And so a lot of the conversation is uh, trying to get the prescription drug bill in a more progressive direction. Good. Okay, well, let's pick up some phone calls here. Uh, Deborah in Denver, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hello, Congressman Khanna. How are you today? Deborah, great to talk to you. Oh, good, good. Thank you. I have a question, but I have a comment first, and then I'm going to get to the question. Joe Biden voted with the Republicans so that people could not include student loans in bankruptcies. And also, Joe Biden voted in favor of shark lending with credit card companies when his family member um, worked for the credit card banks. And he's always been a shield for the credit card companies and, and, and banks. He didn't lift a finger to help um, prosecute any of the banksters that caused the recession in 2008. My concern is that uh, he won't change. He won't change anything Anything if he wins. Uh, Joe Biden, um, he will win the states that will vote Republican. And uh, it, it will go, he will, um, that will go to the Republican. Uh, those states will go to the Republican Party in, in the final election. He, he doesn't win the states that are going to vote Democrat. So, and, Deborah, so what's your question? My, okay, so my question is, the question is, is that about the family members who worked for the credit card banks, he found favor for shark lending for the credit card banks. Was it his wife or was it his son? It, that's my question about that, because. Oh, okay, um, great. Thank you. And, and also, you know, he represented the state of Delaware, which is where I think all right. the banks are incorporated. So that it makes a certain amount of sense. And I don't mean that as a hit on Joe Biden. You're supposed to represent the interests of your state. To you, Congressman. Well, Deborah, this is why uh, I'm a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign, uh, and I believe we need a progressive vision for the Democratic Party, uh, whether that's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or uh, another progressive. Uh, we have to stand up uh, for greater regulation on the financial industry. We need to stand up for, for giving student loan debt. We need to stand up for free public college. Uh, and I think that's what the vast majority of, uh, of Americans want. Now, obviously, I will support whoever the nominee is, but my personal view is that uh, we have a better chance of winning if we run on a bold progressive agenda, and that's also the, a better chance of actually improving people's lives. Connie in Reno, Nevada. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I was wondering, Congressman, if you had ever considered a third option, you know, the, the debate on whether Democrats should take corporate money or not. There should be a third option, and I was wondering what your opinion was. Uh, if, you, if you could rate corporations on if they're environmentally friendly, if they pay living wages, if they're community uh, conscious, and be, for instance, taking money from Costco is not like taking money from Enron. You know, they pay, Costco pays living wages. And so I was just wondering if uh, you had considered a third option of uh, that it would be okay to take money from good companies, and I'll take my answer offline. Thank you. It's a thoughtful uh, point, and I don't dispute that some corporate actors, in terms of how they treat their employees and the environment, are uh, better than others. Uh, but, you know, Obama, under uh, in 2008, uh, prohibited the DNC from accepting corporate money, and uh, the party did fine. And I don't see why we can't return to uh, that policy. Uh, I think it's too much to ask us to be making distinctions about one corporation or another. Now, what you can say is individual candidates can do that. When you accept money from a corporate executive uh, or an individual, you may be more reluctant to do that if they're working at a corporation that's uh, doing a lot of harm as opposed to a corporation uh, that's being responsible. But my personal view is there's no need for the Democratic Party to be accepting that corporate money, and we succeeded when we were without it from 2008 to 2016. Judd in Collingwood, New Jersey, here on the air with Congressman Connor. Uh, listen, I have one question. Do you really believe that our senators uh, ha have no idea of the concept psychological warfare, uh, especially against the uh, public of the, of the United States, uh, that uh, they are working consciously to uh, subvert the wishes and desires and the good goodwill uh, and benefit of the public. That's my question. 
Thank you, okay. Jedi. Yeah, Jedi. I don't believe that. I don't. I don't think most people go uh, get elected to the House or the Senate to uh, subvert uh, the United States. But I do think there are uh, a lot of uh, members of Congress and senators who may be out of touch with the concerns of many uh, Americans. I mean, the fact that you have 140 million Americans who are low wealth and low income and are, don't have enough money to afford rent and afford basic uh, uh, nutrition and to, to pay their living expenses uh, ought to be the challenge of our time. And yet you have bodies that are uh, passing massive tax cuts to corporations. So I think there's a lack of empathy uh, and understanding. Yes. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It by Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff. And this is from the foreword by Ralph Nader. Ever since the few began to control the many, disinformation, fabrications, and distractions have been used to shape consent, impose submission, and maintain domination. Whether by the invoked authority of God, the divine right of kings, the dictatorial embodiment of a fatherland, the dictatorship of the proletariat, or the tyranny of commercially managed marketplaces, the casualty of such control has always been the ability of ordinary people to give voice to their own realities, needs, demands, and grievances. Given the inherent pragmatism of the human mind, the oppressed have often found it safer to believe rather than to think to obey rather than dissent. Today, such a path is reinforced by a plutocratic political economy that allows corporations to dominate mass media, education, and the production of knowledge and memory. Human history, however, has not been without its visionaries, seers, and prescient intellectuals, poets, artists, thinkers, and philosopher rebels. Every major religion admonishes its, its adherents not to allow the merchant class, with its singular focus on aggregating profits at the expense of truth, compassion, and self-restraint, to amass too much power. Such instructions have emanated not from revelation, but from ethics learned by the daily experience of living in community with others committed to the common good. Unfortunately, it has not been the transactional incentives of commerce, but the cooperative bonds of community that dominate the most significant acts of life in the United States today. The dystopian scenarios portrayed in George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World look like understatements compared to today's plutocratic deployment of communications technologies, many of them developed by taxpayer-funded government programs and grants. The ultimate success of top-down censorship is self-censorship by the people. The same holds true for mass surveillance. From radio and television to the internet and smartphones and all the video platforms and apps in between, commercially controlled media have used seduction and addiction to lure users to increasingly stare into screens and share personal data and location, thus becoming complicit with authoritarianism and mass surveillance. In the process, the population has become fact-deprived and over-entertained with lowered expectation levels and reduced attention spans. These technology-driven changes have distracted people from their rights and powers as citizens. As authors Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff write, long before Trump's candidacy, ratings drove programming and news. In the process, celebrity, entertainment, scandal, crime, disaster, and spectacle clearly dominated over substantive reporting and public interest advocacy capable of questioning and countering abuses of corporate power and government authority. Trump, they noted, came right out of the omnipresent corporate commercialism. Deadly degradation of media is everywhere. Fueled by Madison Avenue's promotional perfidy, the junk food industry, bypassing parental authority, has lied its way directly into the stomachs of tens of millions of children, creating an obesity epidemic with its attendant diseases. Alternative facts, anyone? Forty-five years ago, venerated CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite called the three minutes or so devoted to a serious news story merely a headline service. If anything, the situation has worsened since Cronkite's time. Gone are the fairness doctrine, the right of reply, and any pretense that the Federal Communications Commission is regulating the broadcasters according to the 1934 Communication Act standard of the public interest, convenience, and necessity. 
the takeover of hundreds of newspapers, local television stations, and radio stations by corporate profiteers is still worsening. These corporations loot vulnerable media operations by cutting out reporters, investigative journalists, whistleblowers, educational content, and local coverage. Magazines are shrinking, going out of business, or just migrating to online-only versions. Social media cannot generate such content in addition to other shortcomings. Young people today are becoming increasingly illiterate. They spend more time staring at screens, but ultimately read less long-form content unless forced to do so for classwork. Fewer people are showing up for town meetings, marches, demonstrations, and rallies, in spite of the ease and immediacy of communication enabled by the Internet. The so-called information age has become the disinformation age, with the corporate media's exclusion of the civic community being one of its most devastating triumphs. In the 1960s and 1970s, we could not have succeeded in advancing standards for public health and safety, labor, and environmental integrity without the help of mass media reporting on public campaigns and congressional hearings, or without large audiences tuning into programs such as The Phil Donahue Show, which dedicated airtime to discussing our investigations, reports, and exposés. Now it is not just corporate media, but the Congress itself that is increasingly shutting out citizens' groups. The United States of Distraction by Higdon and Huff. The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again. Family, friends, and everything so conveniently documented in video and photographs, capturing every laugh and smile and under-eye bag. Under-eye bag, wrinkles, crow's feet. Yes, those telltale signs of aging. Who wants those in their holiday cards? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderma, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw it. Now I don't have to imagine it anymore. People look just like themselves, only younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to face that judgmental family member. We all know who I'm talking about. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it, unless, of course, you tell them. Get Plexiderm's holiday promotion. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. And welcome back. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Congressman Khanna. I want to find out if there's any progress, if there's any serious discussion about introducing a bill immediately to disallow the pardon of federal officials who have been impeached and convicted of uh, whatever offenses they're convicted of. Richard, I, my understanding is that the Constitution already prohibits the uh, pardon of uh, people who've been impeached and convicted. And, yes. Uh, Tom, do you know? Is that, yeah, it's, it's, is that correct it's right there in, uh, I think it's what, Article 2, Section 4 or something like that. But the House has the sole power of impeachment. Uh, oh, no, wait a minute. That's the pardon provision. Let me actually read it. I, I, I had it out yesterday. And yeah, here it is. He shall have the power, this is Article 2, he shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So, yeah. So there it is in the Constitution. Tom, you, you make me proud as a progressive carrying a Constitution around. <laughs> it, it defies the stereotype. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Lance in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, I, I want to talk about the Postal Accountability Act, uh, H.R. Bill uh, 2382. Yes. And, uh, yes, it was presented in April. Um, there was a similar bill in uh, 17, was H.R. Uh, 756, that was never passed. And uh, H.R. Uh, in 18 was H.R. 6076 that didn't pass. And another Senate bill in 18 was uh, Senate Bill uh, 2629. And they all had to deal with the Postal Service putting their retirees on Medicare. And so they never got Congress approval on it. But uh, last August, the Postal Service decided to put its 500,000 postal employees, retired 
postal employees onto Medicare. And what's your question, Lance? So are you aware of that? The, uh, I, I wasn't aware that they've already been placed on Medicare. I, I, I support uh, the efforts to, to provide them with uh, Medicare and retirement uh, security and have supported those bills and will continue to, to, to push for them. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, got a quick one? Then we just have a minute. Yeah, okay, I'll make it real quick. By the way, Tom, malarkey, I looked it up, and uh, origin is unknown. Okay. Uh, Dictionary.com. <laughs> no wonder. Uh, I, I had this crazy idea, and uh, what if we had one Republican senator and one Democratic senator from each state? How would that look? You mean have any one Republican and one Democrat from each state? I mean, how, I guess the question is, how would you you, you determine that? I mean, if uh, people in my state in California uh, overwhelmingly would want a want a Democrat, I, I think the bigger issue is how do we get the uh, institutions in our country to align with the popular will, where you have uh, a massive uh, demographics that, uh, advantage for policies like Medicare for all, free public college, but you have institutions that are blocking. Uh, the implementation of that. Yeah. I, I, my personal opinion is that you break California into three states. You break New York and Florida and Texas into two states each. Um, <laughs> you consolidate the two Dakotas. You know, they were originally split uh, by uh, Ulysses S. Grant specifically, even though the two of them together didn't have enough population to constitute one single state in order to give him a Republican majority in the Senate back in the 1870s. So I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing story. It's in my next book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. It'll be out in the spring. Anyhow, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna is taking your calls for the hour. And uh, Dave in Rhinebeck, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, Congressman Khanna. Hi, Dave. Good to talk to you. Don Beyer put forth, uh, and I believe you, you in the last session of Congress, you co-sponsored it, the Fair Representation Act, the HR 4000. Yes. Uh, are you are you going to co-sponsor this this next version? I have, and I will. Okay, great. I support the idea of uh, getting rid of gerrymandering. I support the idea of ranked choice voting, and I'm open to uh, multi-candidate districts. I think it would lead. Uh, to more participation and better representation. Steve in New Boston, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, I have been watching the hearings, uh, if everybody, as if most everybody else hopefully is too, and I keep noticing that uh, the Republicans, they want to keep entering on the record that they keep asking for the identity of the whistleblower. Now, I called into the show a couple of weeks ago, and I asked a question to a lady congresswoman that was there, and is, is there laws on the books protecting the whistleblower? And she came back and said, absolutely, there are laws on the books. So my question is this, when the Republicans keep bringing this up to me, I keep hearing we want to break the law because they keep asking for it over and over and over again. Why don't the Democrats come back and say, this is the statute of the law that protects the whistleblowers. Look it up. Yeah, That's his question was for Jayapal, uh, Pramila Jayapal. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I cut him off. I thought he was done, but uh, any, any well, Steve, You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, it is against the law to reveal the uh, source of uh, who the whistleblower is. And if any Republican were to do that, uh, I think you could bring a legal action to say that they are uh, doing something that is uh, illegal. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't support their antics of asking a question, but I don't, you know, I don't think you can, it, it would be illegal to ask a question about trying to get at that information. I mean, journalists ask that, that uh, those types of questions, and there's a balance of the First Amendment right to speech uh, and protecting the whistleblower. But but I uh, completely agree with what you're saying, and their tactics are awful, and that's what they want. That's what they're trying to do because there's no factual defense for this president. All right, and they're also trying to intimidate potential or future whistleblowers, in my humble opinion. Absolutely, they're they're basically saying, "Look, you're, we can make your life very, very hard if you come out against this this president." And I I, I think we've just scratched the surface of the level of corruption that exists in the administration. I mean, we have plenty enough to, to impeach, but uh, we're probably, historians are going to be studying this probably for years, and we're going to see just how thoroughly corrupt this was. So there are probably many more whistleblowers who are out there. Yeah. Steve in Zimmerman, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. 
Good afternoon, Tom and Congressman Kana. Um, I'm wondering, it's come out that Kevin McCarthy and Pete Sessions received rubles from Lev Parnas. Is Congress going to look into seeing how many other Republicans received rubles from Russia? And what are the consequences for those actions? I think it has to be investigated. I mean, it was very concerning uh, what Parnas uh, and others have done uh, with Giuliani, and it's concerning if they've been engaged with uh, uh, Republican members of Congress, and uh, that needs to be looked at either uh, in, in the course of the investigation. Joe in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with your congressman. Congressman, it's a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you next week. And I wanted to express my appreciation to the speaker. I, too, think that Moscow, Mitch, and Trump are both cowards when it comes to the safe gun safety legislation. And I'm broken as an American because of this administration's treatments of refugees at our southern border. But I'm focused on holding to account the Republican Party and the polls in March of this year, of 2020, and again in November, in support of a much larger congressional ethics investigation than some of the president's family and friends in Congress. Now, I have to stop watching MSNBC because this coverage of this is just ridiculous. Joe, what's your question? Well, my question is, have you had a chance to read this uh, revision of the H-1B visas and the H-4 spouse? Uh, I believe it was rewritten and it's open for public comment, but there was an article in the Mercury that said that these revisions and changes are already written. And I'd wondered if you had had a chance to look into that. Well, Joe, the, the there has to be some reform of the H-1B process where you don't want uh, people uh, undercutting American labor markets. And my position has been that what we want is to actually give people green cards so that you don't have labor arbitrage where uh, people are coming into this country, corporations are benefiting, uh, and you're having, uh, uh, because of H-1B status, uh, a vulnerability on employees. The problem I have with the administration is that they are just cutting uh, the legal immigration numbers, and we want to have people coming from around the world and talented individuals, but we want them to come in a way that they aren't being underpaid. And so there are a number of Democratic proposals, one that uh, Dick Durbin has uh, proposed with uh, Republican Chuck Grassley to reform the H-1B process, and that that thoughtful approach is, is uh, what we need. Congressman, we just have 40 seconds. The, the, the guy who's leading the charge against immigration, even legal immigration, into the United States is Stephen Miller. And we know now from yeah. this release of emails that he's, uh, you know, in tight with with uh, white supremacists. And, uh, you know, if, if a Democrat had been in tight with communists in the 50s, I know you and I both know what would have happened. Um, right. Do you think that Congress is going to do anything about this, about Stephen Miller? Oh, that's shocking. I mean, many of us have called on him to resign. Uh, he's not resigning. Uh, and there's not much more that uh, Congress can do. But the, the pro problem is you have a president who doesn't have shame. I mean, almost every other president uh, confronted with that, uh, the person would be out the next day. But uh, he is uh, uh, keeping Miller there because uh, he doesn't want to offend uh, any uh, part of his uh, political base. And that's why we have to defeat him in 2020. Amen. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Congressman Khanna is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. With all the problems unfolding for the Fed and central banks, you may be asking some very important questions. How close are we to the next economic collapse? What will it look like just before the crash? And how can I protect my investments and my retirement? There are a few people better suited to answer these questions than ITM Trading's chief market analyst, Lynette Zhang. Her fact-based research on the markets, currencies, and economy is second to none, and her videos have prepared people for almost every major downfall in the U.S. economy this year. If you haven't heard of Lynette Zhang and ITM Trading, I highly recommend looking them up. They're pioneers in economic education, and they're experts at creating strategies to protect you against the next inevitable crisis. If you're looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile economy since 2007, go to youtube.com slash ITM Trading. I recommend learning as much as you can before the next crisis hits, so you can make the most educated choices while there's still time. That's youtube.com slash ITM Trading. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan Robinson. This is from the introduction. In the last few years, U.S. politics has been completely upended. The presidency of Donald Trump, which took politicians and commentators by total surprise, shattered a number of Washington orthodoxies. Very few experts thought that a loquacious, loutish reality TV star was capable of rising to the nation's highest office. But they had misjudged political reality and forgotten the cardinal rule. Anything can happen. Trump's improbable rise to power was not the only political irregularity to occur over the last several years. While Trump was defeating the most powerful figures in the country's two major political parties, another unexpected phenomena was occurring. The rise of a new radicalism on the left. When Bernie Sanders began his campaign for the 2016 Democratic presidential nomination, no one expected him to pose a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. Clinton was the consensus choice of the party establishment. Influential Democrats openly said it was her turn. Sanders was in the race as a protest candidate. Not only was he considered a marginal figure in Washington, lacking both connections and funding, but he did not have any of the characteristics that traditionally had made one electable. He was old. He was from a tiny state known for hippies and cheese. He was not particularly photogenic, polished, or popular. And he was an avowed socialist in a country that had had a half-century Cold War between good American capitalism and evil Soviet socialism. It was not, however, a year in which the traditional criteria of electability would matter especially much. Sanders, perhaps as much to his own surprise as anybody else's, quickly attracted a significant following. His radical message, stingingly critical of the existing Democratic Party, resonated strongly with progressives who felt let down by Obama and viewed Clinton as part of an uninspiring and possibly corrupt political dynasty. When the first primary contest came around, February's 2016 Iowa caucuses, Sanders achieved a shockingly strong result, coming close to beating Clinton outright. As Sanders began to fill stadiums with crowds, attracting a highly visible and well-organized following, it quickly became clear that the race would not be the coronation that Clinton had anticipated. Clinton ultimately won the Democratic nomination, but it took a bruising fight. Sanders was no mere protest candidate. He was a serious competitor who won 23 contests to, Lincoln's, to Clinton's 34. While Clinton received over 16 million votes across the various primaries, Sanders achieved a remarkable 13 million. It was surprising enough that a socialist candidate could be anything more than a gadfly in a major party do nominating contest. It was downright stunning that such a candidate could rack up nearly two dozen primary victories against one of the most experienced and well-connected members of the Democratic Party. Sanders' unexpected rise to prominence represented an extraordinary shift in the political landscape. The nearest precedent was Eugene Debs' 1920 presidential run on the Socialist Party ticket. Debs achieved nearly a million votes, despite being in prison for defying the World War I draft. But even Debs didn't pose a serious electoral threat to the dominant parties, receiving only 3% of the general election vote. Sanders, who once recorded a spoken word Eugene Debs tribute album and kept a portrait of Debs in his office while mayor of Burlington, Vermont, achieved a far greater measure of success. He may not have started the political revolution that he often spoke of, but he came relatively close to poaching the presidential nomination from the party elite's pre-selected candidate. The Sanders campaign was fueled by millennials whose dissatisfaction with mainstream Democrats made them highly responsive to Sanders' progressive alternative. Clinton may have had more supporters than Sanders overall, but young people of all races and genders preferred Sanders over Clinton by large margins. With the exception of Lena Dunham, it is hard to find many people under 30 who had much enthusiasm for Clinton, a candidate they associated with Wall Street, cronyism, and the Iraq disaster. Sanders' success with millennials, while unanticipated by pollsters, did not occur purely because of Sanders' political skill. It happened because a revolt had been brewing among young progressives for years, as they had steadily grown more and more alienated from the Democratic Party mainstream. Ever since the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011, young people in the United States had been becoming increasingly radicalized. Weighted down with debt, paying through the nose for health insurance, unable to afford to have kids, and frustrated by an undemocratic political system that implements the policy preferences of rich elites, millennials were both frustrated and tired. Sanders came along at just the right moment. They had been waiting for someone to say what was on their minds that the economic and political systems were unfair at their core and needed a drastic overhaul.
But the Sanders campaign was just the start. Joe Crowley had been in Congress for 20 years and was one of the highest ranking members of the House Democrats. He was considered a serious contender for the party leadership and known in his New York City district as a well-connected part of the local Democratic machine. He was the sort of backroom deal-making congressman whose influence is disproportionate to his name recognition. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not an important figure in the Democratic Party, far from it. She was a 28-year-old bartender and activist who had once interned for Ted Kennedy and had worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign. A member of the Democratic Socialists of America, she was considered the longest of long shots in her primary contest against Crowley. Crowley had endorsements from powerful political organizations like the AFL-CIO. Why You Should Be a Socialist by Nathan J. Robinson. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, taking your calls. He uh, represents the 17th District of California. Khanna.house.gov is his website. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Stefan in Mentor, Ohio, listening at 9.50 a.m. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, sir. Congressman, I was watching the hearings and everything, but my question is about the immigration there was a statement during the hearings that uh, the triangle countries were cut off in terms of aid. And I think that that action itself exacerbated the migration from the people in those triangle countries. You're talking Central America. Central America, yes. So this is a self-made crisis that the Trump administration created. So that's my statement. Okay. Well, Stephen, I think we absolutely have to look at both our role in uh, the Central American countries, uh, uh, the support of the United Fruit Company in Guatemala, the support, the United States support of the military regime in El Salvador, the uh, support of the coup in Honduras, uh, how some of our foreign policy has led to the destabilization of those areas. And we have a responsibility to help them with economic development and to help them in tackling gang violence, given that some of the instability was a result of flawed uh, foreign policy. The Obama administration started that approach, doing things like USAID to uh, reduce gang violence. It was working. They had programs teaching kids about computer programming and uh, technology. It was working. And the Trump administration came in and reversed all of that, which exactly, to your point, exacerbated the, the crisis. Tom in St. Paul, Minnesota. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Well, thank you for taking my call. Um, I am calling because there's military code of justice has this Article 134. It's conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. And if you look at the examples, it's kind of like impeachment. You know, there's just these examples that you do things that brings discredit to the military for one reason or another, or one level or another. But it seems to me all these things that we that everybody is irritated individually about Trump could be grouped into the into that article of impeachment if it's based on unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. And just simply, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. What's good for a cadet is good for a commander. Okay. And that was one of the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson, as I recall, was bringing the office of the presidency into disrepute or some words to that effect. Anyhow, Congressman? I'm sympathetic to that argument. I did, I'd have to look up the history about uh, that being used with Andrew Johnson. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the profound lasting damages that uh, Donald Trump has had is uh, lowering the standard of what uh, we see as acceptable for the leader of our country, lowering uh, the bar for the types of public discourse we can engage in, uh, spewing hate, acting with uh, uh, a little kind of decorum. And those things are hard. When, once a culture becomes corrupted, uh, that is hard to, to reverse. And that may be one of the uh, worst legacies of the Trump uh, presidency. Charles in Miami, Florida, you're on the air with, with Congressman Connor. Okay, my question is this. Donald Trump, in order for him to, we're to believe what he's saying about corruption, in order for him to have given Zelensky the aid, something must have prompted him to feel like, as far as corruption, Zelensky was doing his part. So how come he hasn't even, um, as far as I know, scheduled a White House meeting 
to meet Zelensky. Because yeah. isn't that the reason why Plus is all about as well? That we have to at least verify our commitment to Ukraine by holding this White House meeting. And um, he hasn't done anything like that. So I still believe we caught him in a lie. And we just we just have to convince the American people that everything that he and the Republicans are saying is a lie. Well, Charles, I agree with you that they are lying. I mean, their argument is basically that Trump was trying to uh, pressure uh, Zelensky to fight corruption. Uh, but he was not talking about corruption. He was talking very specifically about Biden and Biden's son. Uh, he basically wanted uh, a foreign leader to brand his political rival uh, a criminal. And he didn't even care about the actual investigation. He didn't say, uh, I want you to conduct an investigation. His demand was to announce an investigation. It was basically, uh, can you tarnish my uh, the image of my, my rival? Uh, and those are the, the facts. Uh, they're pretty uh, self-explanatory for anyone who reads the transcripts or who has watched the hearings. Uh, and the Republicans have no factual defense. And so, as you point out, they either lie or uh, try to attack one of the witnesses or uh, distract from the basic facts here. Michael in Imperial Beach, California, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, Mr. Hartman and Representative Khanna. It seems to me that with this impeachment, Vladimir Putin has achieved everything he wants so far. So my question is, Tom and Representative Khanna, is what do you think Putin's second act is going to be and what do you think China's reaction to all this is? Thank you, gentlemen. I think uh, Vladimir Putin wants uh, instability in the, in the United States and wants uh, to, to sow division uh, in the United States. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, Russia is a declining power that uh, is not going to be, frankly, very relevant in, in the 21st century economically uh, or in terms of its uh, geopolitical influence. Uh, my concern uh, is less with uh, Vladimir Putin and more with the internal corrosion of our democracy that Trump has Allowed. By setting the precedent that he would welcome uh, foreign help, uh, he's compromising our electoral sovereignty by uh, denying and criticizing the uh, evidence-based reports. He's uh, uh, making us uh, a, a country where we don't look at expertise. And by riding roughshod over institutional safeguards, he's uh, really hurting the checks and balances of, of our country. So the real damage to me is uh, internal. Alan in Stewart, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. My question is just very simple. Do you think that the Bidens should show up for a subpoena in the Senate trial? Alan, absolutely not. Uh, they, they, there's, Biden's conduct is not uh, in question. The question is, uh, who, what did the president of the United States do? And to turn this into an uh, inquisition against uh, Biden is completely inappropriate. Mandela in Cleveland, Ohio. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, thank you for taking my call. When the people are married and they have a, you know, let's say one partner is unfaithful, they have a tough time reconciling, and oftentimes they have to go to therapy to recover. Obviously, Congress has lost the respect for the public. And so my question really is, do you think that it would be useful to have a precondition like a psychological exam for people who want to serve in college so that we could uh, maybe elevate the level of the uh, people who are given the opportunity to serve. Well, Mandela, I, first of all, I must say I love your name. Um, uh, it's a, a great honor to have a name, Mandela. But I, I don't agree that we need a psychological test. I think that is a, a, a concerning if we start to have uh, people constructing tests on uh, who can run for office. And while I agree with you that there's a lot to be desired for those of us who run for, for office, I think the bigger problem is the polarization uh, uh, of the nation. I mean, most members of Congress are res reflecting the views of their constituencies. And you could replace every single Republican tomorrow uh, with another Republican, and you probably aren't going to change the outcome. 
so uh, the, the question is, uh, how can we change the culture in this country that becomes more evidence-based and fact-based? How can we change the media, maybe with the Fairness Doctrine or other uh, laws that uh, don't allow them to spew propaganda? Uh, how can we encourage more critical thinking and uh, restore fact-based politics? How can we have conversation across geographies uh, among citizens? I think it's a much deeper problem than simply uh, replacing the elected officials. John in Sunland, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, uh, thank you, Tom, and thank you, Congressman Khanna. Uh, there was a poll, a Pew poll, uh, a couple of days ago that said 43% of Republicans believe a president should be free of checks and balances of the courts and Congress. This is wrong. Uh, I, I want to know, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with people that are they're under the influence of the propaganda of uh, people like Hannity and Limbaugh. And, and how do we give uh, uh, the voice to uh, loyal American Republicans? Uh, uh, how do we how, how can we, uh, you know, allow them to speak? Thank you. John, I share your sense of uh, frustration. I mean, I saw another poll that said that uh, Abraham Lincoln, that Donald Trump was more popular among Republicans than Abraham Lincoln was. And uh, the, the, the scary thing is, and I, uh, when you talk to some Republican colleagues of mine, they're actually moderating forces compared to the Republican constituencies in their own districts. They're getting attacked often from the right. So it's important to realize it's not just that Congress that has been radicalized. It's these voting constituencies that have been radicalized. And I think you point to the right reason for it through propaganda on media uh, because of uh, uh, the, the bully pulpit that Trump has commanded. Uh, and it's a, it's a very scary situation where we have to, my, my only sense is we need grassroots organization, uh, the, the type that uh, Bernie Sanders or others are building to help cut through the avalanche of propaganda. Congressman Ro Khanna is taking your calls for the hour. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. His website is khanna.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th district of the state of California, the Silicon Valley area. And we'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Khanna in just a moment. It's 46 minutes past the hour here on the Tom Hartman program. Talk media for the sane among us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And we'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Ro Khanna. We've all heard of Casper. You know, the sleep company with the outrageously comfortable products at not-so-outrageous prices. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, sheets, and duvets, Casper transforms the way we sleep one snooze at a time. Haven't tried them yet? Then it's time to treat yourself to better sleep during their extended Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. Casper Mattress is an award-winning balance of comfort and support. Louise and I love our Casper Mattress. Four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. The zoned support system, unique to Casper, keeps your back aligned and cradles you with extra support. Casper is the perfect place to get all your holiday shopping done because, hey, let's be honest, everybody sleeps. And as always, Casper has free shipping and free returns. Plus, every Casper mattress comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Treat yourself with 10% off any purchase with a mattress today at Casper.com and use the code MONDAYS, even though today's not Monday. That's Casper.com, code MONDAYS, to get 10% off any purchase with a mattress today. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms. Ed in Belfair, Washington, watching on Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, uh, Representative uh, Rokana. My question has to do with the trade agreement between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. Um, I, I have a lot of questions about it, but the main thing is the, who does it help, who does it not help, and who was at, on the table when it was written? What special interests wrote this? Was there trade unions involved? Was it uh, big corporations that wrote this? Um, I'll take your answer off the air. Thank you. Ed, well, it 
when it was written, it helped corporations and it hurt American workers and it hurt uh, workers in Mexico and Canada. I mean, it was a handout, in my view, to corporate interests, uh, where uh, which allowed them to go to places like Mexico without having uh, strong labor standards in Mexico. So workers there were paid uh, below market wages. Uh, and it, it, it hurt uh, organizing in Mexico. It hurt uh, uh, American workers. You're talking it, the original it, it, after. The original after. I right. think that was his, uh, uh, I think he was saying, no, well, his who question was is, involved is, in the... is the new MCA any better? Well, the new FCA is better in some ways. It takes away the uh, international dispute settlement, uh, uh, which was bypassing courts and due process. But it needs to have stronger labor protections, which we're negotiating. And it can't give a handout to pharmaceuticals. I mean, it, uh, in its current form, had extended pharmaceutical patents from uh, locking in 12 years uh, into uh, the agreement, which uh, is unacceptable. So uh, the Speaker and several people in Congress are trying to negotiate to make sure that it strengthens labor provisions without giving these handouts to the pharmaceutical companies. Natalie in Auburn, Washington, let's see on KCBCS. You're on the air with Congressman Kano. Hello. Hi. Your question? I have a question. Here's the thing. Everybody in the Democratic Party is pointing to what a threat this current president is to our democracy, and, and I agree. But the thing is, during this impeachment process, a whole bunch of Democrats voted to extend the Patriot Act, and I'm wondering why that is. Natalie, I, I appreciate that. I was one of the votes for extending the continuing resolution. Now, in 2004, I ran a primary campaign against the war in Iraq and against the Patriot Act. I've been a staunch opponent of the Patriot Act. Russ Feingold, who was the lone senator to vote against the Patriot Act, was one of my heroes. But the choice that many Democrats faced was either to have a shutdown of government or to authorize government funding for an additional 30 days while we renegotiated the Patriot Act provision. So we did not vote uh, to authorize the uh, Patriot Act. We just voted for a 30-day continuing resolution. Uh, and the intent of the Progressive Caucus is to continue to fight uh, for repeal uh, with the constraint that there are many of us who believe that it's not worth shutting down government uh, just to get our, our way on some of these issues because working families and many ordinary people get hurt when you shut down government. So we just have 15 seconds. Do you think that the Patriot Act is going to have a sufficient, a good rewrite? I, I mean, I think there are provisions that need to be repealed from it. The mass surveillance provision, the collection of electronic records provision, been on letters that have, have called for that. And I, uh, I do think that we're going to have to have uh, some serious reform for it. And I'm optimistic we will get that through the caucus. That's good news. We'll be back in just a moment with more of your calls for Congressman Khanna. So our special members-only video, as it were, over at TomHarbin.com this week is about Republicans who claim that they're, uh, particularly those who stay inside the Trump administration, who claim, like this anonymous guy who, who wrote the column a year or so ago saying, don't worry, we're keeping things safe, we're, we're thwarting Donald Trump, Trump's worst impulses. Right, these Republicans who claim that they are staying in the party and staying in the administration, you know, just to hold down the fort. I'm sorry, you guys are not patriots, you're not quiet heroes, you are stooges, toadies, complicit, cowards, traitors, quislings, co-conspirators. Rick Wilson went off on a tweet about this, and I completely agree with it, and uh, added a few thoughts of my own as well. So uh, if you'd like to check it out, it's over at TomHartman.com. It's our, our members-only video for the week. Welcome back, Congressman Ro Khanna, taking your calls. And Kano in Lakeland, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, Congressman Connor. I'm a Republican who's against Trump and thinks there's need for reform in the party. But could the, I heard a psychologist say one time to ask questions engages the mind more than making statements or declarations. Is it possible for the Democrats to start asking the question, why the Republicans uphold the president when he resists the subpoenas? And why, when they ask for the whistleblower to come forth, why do they want to break the law instead of making the declaration that they are? Just ask the question. Maybe that will engage the minds of the public more by asking questions about why the Republicans want to uphold the breaking of the law by the president and, and, and so on. 
You know, it's a thoughtful point. I mean, I I wish our politics were more Socratic and more uh, about uh, dialogue and questioning than uh, making outrageous statements. Uh, I'm not sure it would be effective when you have uh, uh, messages on Fox News saying that the uh, Democrats are unpatriotic and you have a a coordinated effort on the Republican side to to paint uh, the the whole effort by Democrats as uh, uh, wrong. Uh, But I I agree with you that we need to at least challenge uh, uh, these officials to to ask why they have uh, abdicated their constitutional responsibility. Jill in Manila, Indiana. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Congressman Khanna. I saw a thing on MSNBC yesterday where they said that not all of the aid had been released, that they were still holding $35 million. And I didn't know if you knew about that or why that was, why they were doing that. Anything, I'll just let you go and answer. Joe, I don't have the details on that. I, I, I will have to, to look into it. My understanding is that the aid uh, by congressional statute was eventually uh, released, but it was delayed, and, and, and it was released uh, only after a lot of conditions on Zelensky had been placed. Yeah, they were reporting yesterday that there's still $35 million that's, on, that's got a hold on it. I don't, I don't have any details beyond that, but FYI. Sherry in Boca Raton, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman Khanna. Happy Friday, gentlemen. Um, I I don't appear to be deliberately obtuse. I I really try to stay informed and pay attention to this stuff, and I'm grateful for this show and the participation. It has kept me extremely energized the last three years. My question is, is there thoughts or talk or ideas happening about possibly impeaching Mitch McConnell? And I ask that because Lawrence O'Donnell, there was a, a segment about him being more dangerous than Trump because of the complacency and how he lets this stuff go on without any fuss, kicking up any fuss, unless Donald Trump just do whatever he wants. And for that matter, second, um, like a second part to this is what about all the president's men, like in Watergate, the other people that went down with Nixon? Obviously, there are people that need to go down with Trump. Answer for your question. Thank you so much. Well, Jerry, I, I think what we need to do is defeat Mitch McConnell. I mean, I, I do make a distinction. I, I agree that with Lord Zanell that Mitch McConnell has been a huge obstacle to American progress. He has basically withheld a vote on gun violence legislation, on prescription drug legislation, on infrastructure legislation. But there is a difference, in my view, by the blatant corruption of Donald Trump and the uh, terrible tactics of Mitch McConnell. And what the challenge for the Democratic Party, I was talking to Reverend Barber yesterday from the Poor People's Campaign, and he was in uh, Harlan, Kentucky, and he said, look, that was a county that Lyndon Johnson visited, uh, and that there is an opportunity in states like Kentucky to build a coalition uh, with the African-American community, but also uh, poor uh, white working-class voters, and to say that uh, that that coalition can be built on uh, seeking uh, a more just economic policy uh, and a better life. And I think the challenge for the Democratic Party is not to write off counties to build that kind of coalition so that we can defeat Mitch McConnell, uh, take back the Senate, and, and, and act progressive policies. Congressman Conner, we just have 30 seconds left. What, what should we be watching for and working toward over the next week? Well, of course, we're going to continue to push forward on the impeachment. I think we will have a vote before adjourning from Christmas, and that is something that we'll continue to look for people's engagement. But this prescription drug fight is going to be critical next week. It's all about whether we're going to make good on our promise to allow Medicare to negotiate or whether we're going to compromise with ourselves, as Democrats too often do. The pharmaceutical lobby is out in full force on the Hill. So citizen voices on that can really make a difference. Great. Thank you so much, Congressman, for being with us today and and for the frequency with which you come on this program. Thank you. Tom, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy it. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott.
From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there could be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband, and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada, and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment, other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. 
John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. ahead, Carl. I'm listening. Talk dirty to me. Staph, salmonella, E. coli, influenza. Wait, not that kind of dirty. Do you realize you just took me to the toilet and kept wiping in between tweets? No wonder one in six phones contain fecal matter. Gross. Whatever your hands touch, I touch. I'm covered in filth. It's enough to make both of us sick. Please, can you get me a phone soap? Phone soap? Phone soap safely kills 99.99% of all those germs with clinically proven UV light. It won't damage my screen like liquids or chemicals. Good, because you're all I've got. That's so sweet, Carl. Phone soap is trusted and used by healthcare professionals and hospitals. It fits phones of all sizes. Phone soap makes the perfect holiday gift. Go to phonesoap.com, use code TOM to save 20% off and receive free shipping. That's phonesoap.com, use code TOM. Go to phonesoap.com and use code T-H-O-M to save 20% off today.